everyone. Welcome back to Deadline City. We are your hosts. I'm Zoraida Cordova. And I'm Danielle Clayton. And where are we going to today, Danielle? We're going to the myth-busting manor where we're going to talk about... I knew you were going to laugh at that. I knew when I said it that it was a mistake. Um, <laughs> but we're going to talk about some of these myths that we've heard people bring to us, people who have mini books, people who are debuts, and sort of talk about our experience in regards to some of these big myths that we're, we're hearing about. Yeah, I feel like throughout our career, we'll we'll often hear things from from baby authors or even seasoned authors who are like, I heard X, Y, Z. And sometimes I'm like super flabbergasted where I'm like, who the fuck said that? Um, and and because, because, you know, we are all independent contractors, we, there are no rules, really. Uh, we're making a lot of this up as we go along. There, there is no actual guidebook to how this industry works. And so a lot of it ends up being hearsay, personal experience that becomes myth. Um, and, and so let's just tackle them down one by one. These are, these were submitted through a call for, for myths, uh, on Twitter and via email. Uh, so thank you to everyone who sent them in anonymously. Um, I will kick off with myth number one. Okay. You have to be on social media to sell books. That is incorrect, right? I think that publishers like it mm-hmm. when you are. I think some people have been able to use social media and the cult of personality and gathering followers and fans to to sell some books, but then like people who are celebrities who are on social media, who have large followings, sometimes they get book deals and their books actually don't do that well. They don't sell at all. Right. In proportion to how many social media followers they have. Right. Um, Right. So there are plenty of people who are not on social media that sell books. This is a very, very difficult one to answer because I think that, we don't as as regular degular writers, <laughs> non celebrity folk, right? We we need almost all the help we can get, right? Mm-hmm. So if I but but how much is is like shouting at my 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 something thousand followers gonna translate to sales? Right. We had a great episode with Alex Astor about does TikTok sell books if the author themselves is the one promoting it versus like a fan promoting it. I think right. social media sells books for readers, but I don't think I'm the vehicle through which that happens. I can remind readers. I also think that like there are some authors who are not on social media Right. Neil Schusterman, I don't think right. is really like he's not like Stephen King, you know, tweeting at right at, at you know, everyone who makes him mad. <laughs> and right. and Susan Suzanne Collins is not on social media, but she's almost grandfathered in because she's been writing since before that. Holly isn't really like Holly posts on Instagram every now and then every yeah. now and then. But like I really think that this is this is has to go into myth. It can't be a fact. Um, right. But there is some gray area with this myth because I also think like there are people whose books were popular before the internet was like a thing. That's um, true. A thinking, 
And they have benefited from being able to cultivate their fandom and their reading community um, and readers without social media. So social media came and then they were able to grow it, right? I do think that this next generation of readers and people who grew up with the internet go and look for their favorite writers on the internet. Um, So I do think that sometimes for some people, having an online presence does help them get the word out about their books, especially if they're not able to go around to conferences and go around to festivals and, and do all of that. And I do think there are some writers that have used social media in savvy ways to where it does help them sell books. But I, I, I do think this is, if there is a a meter that says myth on one side and fact on the other, this one whacks and wanes because I just don't think that, I don't think that it's yes or no. I think it's somewhere in the middle and it depends on the book, depends on the writer and depends on sort of like the genre and category. Like, I don't think you being writing picture books, being on social media is going to help you sell those picture books maybe to parents, right? Like a six-year-old's not on the internet. But like the 16-year-olds that follow us are like, they're watching, they're waiting, you know, they're like engaging a little bit. But I just, I think it's more, like you said, more myth than than fact. But there is a little bit of gray area. Yeah. Why are you grinning like that? Because I'm a Cheshire Cheshire cat. Okay. So I can see her face now, like when we record, which is probably the worst thing ever because now we're really going to cut up because I can see her versus just hear her voice. (laughs) Oh, Zencaster, thanks for changing your platform. More chaos will ensue. All right, let me do myth number two. (laughs) Um, Okay, myth two. Changing agents reflects badly on you as a writer. I hear this a lot from friends who are moving around agents who have several books. They're afraid that they look like that they've been in like several marriages, right? It has that kind of stigma of like, oh, I'm getting married for the third time. I'm getting married for the fourth time type of situation. Like I'm used goods or like I have too much mess. Like I have too many things to clean up that a new agent wouldn't want to do that. Um, I might not be able to make the money for a while. Like all of those, like it's a lot of, I feel like negative connotations, even though you should be able to move agents as you see fit. So, but what I, I, I think that this is definitely a myth, but there are some facts behind it, right? Like if, if all myth is based on reality, because for, you know, it, I, I, you're not used goods, you know? You, yeah. It does not reflect badly on you as a writer. It just ref, it's just a reflection of the of a, a relationship that didn't work for whatever reason. And there will be other agents because you know when I went back out there for the third time, I did have some agents who were basically like, "I don't know what to do with this." Right? Like, here's your baggage. Take it with you. Hit the road. <laughs> And, 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 and so, said to me, I have a list of them. <laughs> and it is one of those things. It does make you feel like, oh shit, can I even, can I even fix this, this like ship? Like, can I write this course? Right. Can, you know, I, am I headed to just like a, 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 a head on collision or can I fix it? And, and so it, 
it is, it does become this awful feeling, but I do think that it's, it is just a feeling. It's not true. Um, I think that changing agents is something that is very personal and you can, you, at the end of the day, I know everyone is scared, scared that you might not be able to find representation again because it's so hard the first time. Like, why would you want to do it again? Um, or scared that, that it, that, that you, that you're going to hurt the person who took a chance on you. And mm-hmm. at the end of the day, you just have to separate the business from the emotion. Um, and do what's and, right for you. And, your right, and do what's right for you. Right. And like have faith that like, okay, maybe someone might say something, but who cares? Like, this is about a business. This is, you are running your own business and you need to be with the best person that can help you, um, successfully do what you want to do. Mm-hmm. All right. So myth number three, things get easier in traditional publishing. <laughs> what does that even mean? <laughs> Cause that feels like, a lie. This actually, this actually goes in line with like the following, the the next myth, which is the only benefit to traditional publishing is distribution. Ooh, ooh um, that's a spicy myth. That's a spicy myth. And so I think like I'll tackle the first part, saying I have self published some uh, two things, and it is not easy. Um. There are some things that are easier, which is having creative control over what your book looks like, what your cover looks like, uh, absolute control, not just like meaningful, meaningful input. Um, and being able to shift dates without really, you know, without it impacting something else, but it, it, it is, it's really hard business. Like self-publishing is really hard business. And if you're not out there trying to figure out how to work ads on Amazon and Facebook or Instagram, then you do have to go into full author mode and figure out any way to promote your book on social media. So whereas in traditional publishing, things are just different. They're hard, but they're, they're hard in a different way. So I think that like, they're two very different sides of the same coin, but I don't think that the author's job gets easier with one or the other. What do you think? Yeah. I think it's, it's, um, there are pros and cons to both sides. Like I, I respect the hell out of, um, our fellow counterparts in, um, the self pub world who are running their own businesses, like, a like bosses. Right. Um, and it's a lot of enterprising, really amazing women, frankly, uh, doing their fucking thing. And I love seeing that. And so there are, there are pros to like doing your own thing and setting up your own little shingle, um, and, uh, putting your books out but you're doing a lot of different things and on the traditional side, right? And on the traditional side, we also have a lot of red tape and things that we have to deal with too. They're just different, right? Um, And nothing is easier, gets easier. Like a kid asked me when I was on tour, um, does each book, you know what I mean? Like, do we still deal with rejection? I was like, yes. All of this is full of rejection no matter what. So traditional publishing does not get easier, Um, frankly, I think it gets harder because there are expectations now, right? You have a sales track that can be held against you. There are people, um, you have existing relationships that you have to sort of like navigate, even if you want to leave a publisher, right? 
things like that. Like, I think it actually gets harder. Um, the deeper that part is harder. Mm-hmm. And so do you think that, what, what do you think would be the, what would, like, if you, if you were to self-publish, what would, the, what would be the things that you would miss, right? Like when people say the only benefit of traditional publishing is distribution, what, yeah. what do you think the benefits are for traditional publishing? At, for um, us as YA writers, let's just as, say that. As YA writers, I think the benefit is that, um, there, there is a network that we can get to young people that's built in, right? That's number one. So it's like our books, uh, going to libraries, going to schools, being able to go to all of these conferences, um, that are geared towards young people and gatekeepers who can get us to young people and get our books into their hands. So like there are, there's a road that's already built. There's a bridge that we can already cross if our publisher, you know, is on top of things. Cause right again, like not everybody gets this opportunity as well. Um, if their book is not slated for school and library. Right. Uh, also, I think just not having to worry about certain things. I don't have to worry about, uh, paperweight and, uh, cut and trim size. I don't have to, uh, create the machine basically the, uh, from getting the manuscript from my computer into a form. Like I don't have to worry about the stages. Like I, all of that is taken care of. There is a copy editor waiting for me. There is an editor waiting for me. There is sales and marketing waiting for me. There's, you know what I mean? All, uh, all of these, this machine, and I don't have to worry about it. What I have to worry about is how I'm going to help the machine once the book comes out, right? How am I right. going to help create publicity and all of that? But there is a machine. So I think that it, it makes us a little spoiled because we have mm-hmm. to, like, we just enter our books and enter a machine that is, like, already built for us. And when you, when you uh, self-pub, you are the machine. Yeah. And that means it's a lot of work, Um in a different way, mechanically speaking. Yeah. I think, I think it is interesting that, um, uh, right now in, in adult publishing, there's this trend in romance where if a book does incredibly well, a publisher is now like, let me get in on your business. And this is what we offer. And I, I've seen source books, Atria, uh, I don't know. I don't know about the others, uh, Berkeley or Avon or any of those publishers, but like they seem to be, they see a book, do astronomically well, um, on self pub. And they're like, I wonder what they offer to these self publishing authors who, you know, you're getting the the main take of your thing. Is it prestige? Because why would you, why would you cut in a publisher when you're already making all of the money? I have, I have, I have thoughts about that. I feel like, um, if it was me, the only reason I would take a traditional deal is so that I could get the bookstore traffic. So I could get into conferences where, excuse me, where they don't allow, uh, self-pub. So I could, so I could saturate more of the marketplace. Right. right? I think in, in romance, in romance for, for festivals, that doesn't even matter. Like most authors bring their own books to sell anyway. Uh, and sometimes there's not a bookstore. You bring like your books and you order your books and they arrive there. So that's, I just think that's interesting. Like if something like the Atlas six, right? Like that blew up on TikTok. I think that she got a whole new, uh, group of readers. Like I'm not on TikTok and I'm not on social media like that. And I hadn't heard of it, but I, um, I saw the covers that came out from tour. Right. Mm -hmm. And I was like, Ooh, I was like, this looks like a me book, right? In the bookstore, in the bookstore, I'd seen it and I read the flap and I was like, oh, 
I'm going to check this out. I had no idea that it had been previously self-published. And like, now I'm like, I'm really into that series. Like it, it, you know, and I think that, I think you can get more, you can get more readers that aren't on social that aren't plugged into your particular pocket of book community. Um, just growing your readership, but like, I think being a hybrid author is probably, uh, the dream, um, but like a little support, but also learning the machine and, and having that balance. That's yeah. what I would do if I, if I had the time. Also, it's so exhausting. Like yeah. it's, it's almost worth, uh, having this deal. I mean, I love, I love having my publisher and having like a team at my back. So Cause no you're shut up. Okay. So myth number five is switching publishers is bad. AKA is the house author still a thing? Ooh, this is, I mean, I, I have a lot of, I don't even know if I want to count them on my hands. Let's try. All right. Debut source books. I work with diversion books should not be allowed to call themselves a publisher. They are a vanity press. Um, (laughs) diversion books, diversion books. Uh, in case I need to say it again, Kensington books, romance, mm-hmm. Simon and Schuster, Atria, Disney and little Brown. And now Del Rey for adult for star Wars. I'm not counting the anthology books. Oh, uh, well, I guess I should count the anthology books. The ones that I've edited, not the ones that I've been in stories. Yeah. Um, it would be Macmillan to imprints mm-hmm. of Macmillan. So eight publishers, so you're a big, big publishing whore. Yeah. Slut all around Slut. town. Which is okay. uh, all around town. HarperCollins, then Disney for a while. Then... Scholastic, nine publishers. Sorry. Oh, God. <laughs> you're such a whore bag. Okay. So, yeah, Harper, Disney, Macmillan, back to Harper. Yeah, I have three main squeezes. One, um, as of next year, is we're broken up. <laughs> um, and I'm like a free free lady when it comes to, to YA fantasy. Um, and I'll be looking for my fourth lover um, at some point uh, for, my, for my adult. So you have to just the way that editors leave publishing houses and go to other publishing houses in order to like get a title raise and, um, and a pay increase. It's the same thing with us. Sometimes not all of us have the luxury of becoming a house author. We don't enter the game at that house at a level that makes us someone they want to invest in. So like, there's also that, like not everybody gets that luxury. So we have to move. We sometimes have to move around to get, to find our house, to find our place where we feel comfortable. Right. I think that, you know, for me coming into, I, I really, at the beginning of my career, I was very grateful to be, to have been given the opportunity to publish. And I'm trying to get out of that mindset because Mm -hmm. I shouldn't be grateful. Like it's a business deal. Like I'm giving you my book, you're giving me an advance and you're going to publish my book and it should be a good business relationship. Um, I think that I've had, I've had really great experiences. I've worked, I've, I've worked with a lot of really great people, uh, source the, like the, the, the library marketing people at Sourcebooks are really great. Um, the editors that I worked with were great. Um, it, and 
and and but you know the advances were just too small to be yeah. able to even consider publishing another book there and even though they say that their advances are competitive i have not experienced that um, right. perhaps There's, other authors right um have experienced it but regardless i i i don't think that switching publishers is bad. I think that you have to go, uh, where you see a bigger opportunity. Perhaps there's a publisher that, um, that can convince you, right? Like when you go on submission and you have all of these publishers vying for your book, you go with the one that feels right. Like the conversation that you have the best uh, like the, the, what the, the editor that you have the best conversation with the marketing team that, has like a great plan. And I just don't necessarily think that we have the luxury at this day and age to be house authors anymore. I would love to be a house author. I would love Atria to buy all of my books. Um, and so that is, that is my goal, but I don't think that there is anything wrong with authors who have to go and publish at different places to, to, um, to make a living. To make a living living. and also to, like, grow their career and to find a place that's most aligned with their vision and um, who's going to give them the most opportunities for success. It does feel like having multiple boyfriends where you're like, oh, well, this boyfriend uh, or a girlfriend, you know, challenges me intellectually, but this boyfriend bought me a nice car. (laughs) Oh, my God. This is a terrible analogy. Yes, it is. I take it back. <laughs> Wait, did you put me on your list of booze? Yeah, I did have Disney, yeah. Okay, just making sure that you have all of your your boyfriends accounted for. Thank you. Thank you, I yes. do. Oh, um, my God. Okay. But, it's, it's, but I just don't think, I don't think that there's anything bad about switching houses. I do think that some publishers will make you feel guilty and say things like, well, we could have done this. Well, why didn't you do it when you had the chance? Exactly. Johnny come lately. No, thank you. Like it's gaslighting. It's giving big gaslighting. gaslighting. I remember, I remember a publisher, like the CEO of, of, of a publisher said to me, I think I had like a big line for labyrinth loss at a BEA. And the publisher said to me, see, you could never do this with tradition, with a uh, self-publishing. And I was like, I That's don't self-publish. I don't self-publish. I, I hadn't self-published at the time. I think she thought that my romance novels were self-published. And I had, and I was like, well, then you shouldn't have rejected my romance novels. Right. Oh. And I was just like, I'm just so, I was just like, mm. So, so yeah, a publisher will, I've heard this story many times where a publisher makes you feel guilty or they stop promoting you Yeah, because that's, mm-hmm. that is that, and that has nothing to do with you personally. It has something to do with the publisher because they've decided to no longer invest. Um, but that is a calculated risk when you're moving on to bigger and better things. Yeah. That's an interesting one. All right. Myth number six, you're up. Myth number six, authors need to start building a brand so they can be successful, where brand means only writing certain types of books for a certain age group. This does not apply to Ones Ride Cordova. 
That's very interesting. Huh. So I, I think, think what this is asking is mm. you should stick to one lane and stay there. I think some people believe this. I do believe that some people have used this as their philosophy and guiding principle for their careers. So it has created a thing where you watch someone who's working in the same sandbox sort of do well in that sandbox. But I don't think there's one shoes, shoes fits all, you know what I mean, type of thing. But um, the brand thing is is very interesting because you're building a readership. Right. And so do your readers expect X, Y, Z? Like, what if I decide to start writing horror, right? I don't write horror. That would be interesting. It's Um, interesting about will your readers follow you into what what you're into. Very few people get that luxury where they get to just write whatever they write and they have a dedicated fan base that, like, buys every single thing that they do. mm Mm-hmm. But I do think that if someone is coming to you for dark YA fantasy and you're writing those, you could experience a change if you go from dark YA fantasy to, you know what I mean, now I'm going to do this fluffy, cute rom-com. They might not follow you. They might just wait for your next dark YA fantasy. So that is a risk that you have to take as you're figuring out what the heck you want to write. We've seen some of our contemporaries do this. Yeah, that's true. I, I mean, I, I, I've never, I didn't brand my, like, look at some, look at your website, right? Like when we talk about an author brand, what, what are the core, for me, it's like, what are the core themes or, or vibes or something that I'm expecting when I jump into a book by a specific author? And I feel like across the board, my readers will know something is my book when they read it. Like, I just, I I think that I've developed a style and a tone and, and I think you can see that across me writing magical realism or writing fan, like writing romance. However, I did change my name for romance, right? I have Zoe Castile for the, uh, the romance that has more sex in it. Um, whereas like in my Zoraida Cordova stuff, it's mostly YA and middle grade, even though I'm no longer writing those, I'm, I'm going to, I'm, my adult is still very different. So when we talk about author brand, I just don't think that you should put yourself in one lane if, if you're not happy there, because you're worried that this is the only way to be successful. Yeah. And if it's, if there's, if it's anxiety inducing, or if it's a thing you think you have to do, don't do it. But if you want to do it, you can do it, you know, and you can keep stepping um, away from the thing that was like successful or the first thing that you've done that like broke out. You know, I see mm-hmm. a lot of that. <clears throat> However, I will say that let's say that you want to start your debut novel with uh, let's say it's a, a contemporary romance, small town romance. You were, you want your second book to be aliens. You want your third book to be, uh, fantasy. You want your fourth book to be contemporary. So I think that what you really need to do, I would never tell somebody to pick one thing and just keep writing. I would tell somebody, what is the strategy in putting these books out in this way, right? Is there another way where you could find the, the common denominator and strategize 
so that your books come out in a way that maybe your readership can follow you. Right. Because these readers are very different and we can't pretend that the readers don't have expectations or come for certain things and might not come if you've got other things. And it's a risk you have to be willing to take. Yeah. So I, think we, <clears throat> I think it's important to think it through. Right. Yeah. And sometimes that means uh, creating a pen name or a slightly different pen name, right. With initials and same last name, or I don't know, or sometimes you just want to completely differentiate between, between these two names. But I, I feel like, the book is not your brand. Like you are your brand in a way. Um, and I would never want anyone to feel pigeonholed into doing like one age group, one type of book. Um, but I do think that you have to strategize with your agent in order to figure out the best way to release something. Yeah. So that you're not all over the place, which is like for the first eight years of my career, I didn't have a strategy. I was just doing whatever the fuck. And Now it's taken me a long time to untangle that. And your agent now is not playing those games. I know. (laughs) She'll be like, um, no. (laughs) Let's think. She doesn't say no. She'll be like, let's think about. (laughs) I've had her say that to me. Let's think about this thing. And that's how I know how she's saying. I never noticed that. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. She'll do like that whole thing in a nice way. Um, I was thinking <laughs> she's going to to this podcast and she always blushes when we talk about her. She told me. <laughs> we love it. We love it. Um, <clears throat> okay. Go. Um, this would be seven. Actually. Number seven. Right. Mm-hmm. Also. Okay. Looking for diverse stories from marginalized communities feels like a way to save face when their entire, entire client list is the color of a hospital room wall. Oh, I know who this is from. (laughs) One of my favorite people. (laughs) Okay. Um, So we're saying that if, so we're saying that if like an agent or publishing company says that they're also looking for diverse stories for marginalized communities. Meanwhile, their actual list and, and things do not reflect that. Yeah. I mean, I have a lot of feelings about this because I feel like this is not a myth. Um, I think we've seen it. I think that no one cared about diverse books until certain points and when it became profitable, right? Like I was on a panel with some other um, packagers and one packager was like, you know, pontificating about diversity and blah, blah, blah. And I kind of like lost my shit. I was like, I've been in the industry for a while. And I remember when you didn't care about it at all, when all of the people you worked with were white women writing these, these books, um, these long-term series. So like, let's not pretend that you were interested in it until you could get, make some money, right? Like until, a groundswell happened and people were actually like, Hey, this is unfair until they started tallying numbers until you felt like you could make a buck. You didn't care if diverse representation was a part of the books you were putting out because it was about how much money you were making, mm-hmm. like not purpose driven work for you. You're owned by a massive, massive like company. Like, please yeah. don't. I've also seen it. this with, I've also seen this with agents where I'm like, <clears throat> you didn't give two shits about diverse representation before we need diverse books came out. And all of a sudden you saw like, Oh, look at these books hitting the list. I should become a diversity champion. Exactly. 
a literal white knight. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, but obviously those people exist. I, I don't think, I think, I don't think this is a myth. I think this is something that we really have to grapple with in publishing. If you're, if you're looking at agencies, I, I personally feel like, um, when I was querying agents, I looked at their author list to see how many Latinas they had, how many, how many people of color they had on staff. Is it only like an intern? Is it only a junior staff member? Um, and if the question, if it wasn't clear from their website, uh, something that I, I, you know, you might also ask during interview, like what, what are, what diversity and inclusion measures does your company take? Um, because you never want to feel like a unicorn, and right. also in this at this point in time, if since 2014 these companies haven't gotten it together, that says more about them than it does about than than anything that you could ever ask. Right. Exactly. Like, it's it's interesting. It's something to think about. Um, why they why they want you, and like why now, when you know type of thing. I, I think it's I think it's funny. I think it's mm-hmm. funny. And curious, and I ask a lot of questions about it um, because I watched the industry change. So did you, Z. Like, I remember going to places like SCBWI and conferences and being one of two people of color in a fucking um, room of like 300. <clears throat> yeah. And being like, oh, okay, like, let's not pretend that you guys were all so invested in diverse representation for so long when it started to sell is when you got involved, when you got involved, when you cared. So I don't think that it's a a myth. I think that it is a real thing that happened in our industry that we witnessed. Mm Um, all right. Myth eight. Myth eight. Publishers will sideline your book if it doesn't align with what currently sells slash is popular. I think the publishers will stop investing in your book. Um, I think they'll pull your marketing. I think they'll pull your publicity. Mm-hmm. I think that they'll, they'll write it off as a loss. Um, yeah. so if that's what you mean, if that's what this person means by sidelining, <clears throat> I think I've seen that happen to friends. I've witnessed that happen where it's like, they're no longer that excited about the book. Right. Book one comes out. Book two is like, mm-hmm. well, good luck. Book three. Yeah. If it's a especially if it's a series, that's yeah. what's really rough. That's what's really rough. Um, I think that this is true. This is not a myth. I think mm-hmm. that this can be true, and I don't want to alarm anybody, but I do think that, like, let's say a publisher buys a book for a lot of money, and they're very excited when they buy it. A year and a half goes by, and that trend is no longer happening, or whatever buzz, the original buzz, is no longer there. And I think that if there's no initial excitement from the buyers from internally, yep. uh, then then it does become this thing where like, okay, we're no they're no longer as excited and it shows. And um, it becomes the Whoopi Goldberg uh from Ghost thing, uh, you and Danger Girl, because <laughs> they will they just stop investing. They just stop putting you out there. There were so many people whose trilogies became duologies mm-hmm. like in 2011, 12, 13, 14, 15, right? Where it's like, yeah, 2012 is like people were buying 
they that's when the the the, the trilogy bubble really started to burst. Yeah. And all of a sudden it's like, well, we only want two because these trilogies yeah. are like nobody's committing. Nobody's and I'm committing. Like, well, what do you expect when you're giving an author a year to put together a book from beginning yeah. to end? Yeah. All right. Like, um, it's this hard. industry has changed so much. Like this is making mm-hmm. me realize just how much the industry has contracted and expanded and contracted again in remember the last like, 10 years. I mean, I remember all of the angel books. I remember all the vampire books. Like we could do a map one, one deadline city sort of video I would love to do is I would do a map, a trend map. People don't realize I have a master's in children's literature. I read the entire canon. I could do a map of all of the, what I will call lighthouse children's books, the ones that blew up, right? So I could put um, Harry Potter. I could put Divergent, uh, put Hunger Games. I could put um, Twilight. And from those, I could branch out to 30 books that came mm-hmm. out of that, off of those lighthouses, right? And then spread out from there, right? to make these trends and make these trend maps all the way to John Green, right? Like all of these flares to, to Bardugo as a lighthouse now, but she had to work to become a lighthouse, uh-huh. right? <clears throat> and started her own trend in, in Russian inspired fantasies, right? Like, <laughs> but we could do that. And then it's like, oh, and then we could also do it with like covers because it corresponds like, oh, we've got girls in dresses. We've got Ali Condi's Matched, which kicked off a whole bunch of these sort of pseudo selection mm-hmm. books, right? And the types of covers that they had. And then we res- then it contracts, right? And then it's like, we don't want any of these. And so people whose trilogies had just started at the tail end got, got eaten up. Mm-hmm. Like Shatter Me was also a lighthouse. Then their books just didn't get any more investment, and they literally they canceled them. Yeah, they canceled those contracts. And this is why publisher language around marketing is so fucking obscure. Yeah, because they can't guarantee that in a year and a half they'll still be in love with you, right? Mm-hmm. They just want to hit yeah. it and quit it. Hit it and quit it, girl. Like move <laughs> on. They're like, oh, it's like. And, and they're, they're going to so- woo the next thing, the next shiny, bright thing. Yes. And there are certain publishers that have a mentality of what have you done for me lately? Yeah. So it's like they forget, oh, I sold this many books two years ago, but it's like, what have you done for me lately? It's called and getting, it's called getting harbored. <laughs> yeah. Correct. A publisher I have never worked with, but Danielle has. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Daddy Murdoch is one of my main squeezes. And so I know what that means. You have a good relationship. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, okay. Myth 10, right? Nine. Nine. Um, Authors don't get a say about their covers. That's semi-true. That's semi-true because contractually, some of us get to consult, but we don't get the final say. Right. But, you know, there are some people that as their success grows, they get to sort of do more and have Mm -hmm. more say. But like when you're first starting out, you don't really get a lot. Um, I've, I've been through this where I'm like, I say something bad that I've done. Okay. Uh, I have, I have liked a really terrible comp because I knew that if I liked this terrible comp, my publisher would be like, what about this? So it, it was sort of like pushing them to a middle ground. 
Oh my God. So strategy. <laughs> strategy. It could it could have backfired on me. Yeah, it could, it could have. have you could have got you could have gotten a fugly cover. This is for this is for my my second series a long time ago, 2016. Um but yeah, I was like, I was like, well, what about this? Because I knew it was ugly. Yeah. And like so ugly. They're like, no, 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 what about this? And I was like, great, that's exactly what I wanted. <laughs> Sometimes you gotta do what you gotta do to get to get where you wanna go. So you did you did it. But like, you know, there are some authors that have more say. It's contractual too. I have uh, seen authors cry. Mm-hmm. I have seen authors uh, literally change an element of their book because the publisher said, well, we want to give this character a neon pink wig. So put it in the book. And and the author's like, well, why? I don't. And but see, I know for a fact that my agent now would never let that happen. Yeah. No. So it, it also depends. So I think yeah. meaningful consultation cover. So I Getting cover approval is real hard. Yeah. I don't Um, know anybody who has that. Yeah. And also, to be honest, I don't think all authors really know. Yeah. Because some authors might like a cover that, to me, is aesthetically unappealing. Well, there are a lot of ugly covers out there. So there we have, (laughs) there's a lot of divergent tastes. Yeah. And so I think that I think, of course, of course, you know, eyes in the beauty of the beholder, but, um, he is in the eye of the beholder. Wait, what did I say? That eyes in the beauty of the beholder. (laughs) Oh, my God. Oh no. Um, All right, whatever. I'm leaving that in there. Um, (laughs) But I think that, look, a publisher does not want you to truly be miserable. I hope. It really depends. And this is like, this is the problem with these like myths and truths is, is things depend. And sometimes it comes down to like the, the, the relationship that you have with the publisher, the relationship that your agent has with the publisher, uh, and that's why these relationships are so fragile and so important to n- to nurture and to be genuine about because like you could that way you can you can go to your editor and honestly say like this cover makes me want to cry because. yeah like with with uh, with Atria with the inheritance of Arquita Divina they consulted me and they asked me like well what do you want and I'm like well this is what I want but I totally understand because I'd been so traumatized from the past yeah. that I was like do whatever you want and then but they they you know. And it worked, and we have two beautiful covers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it is, you know, I'm very happy with how that turned out. But so it is somewhere, again, it's somewhere in between. <laughs> okay, uh, so we have here, quote, Group X doesn't read genre X. Uh, and this mean, this is an anecdote from the person who asked and said, for me, a small press told me black folks don't read SFF, which I knew to be false, um, but I was hella demoralized when I was first out there. Right. So, uh, I think that's a huge red flag and, uh, and a myth, um, to say that any group doesn't read such and such. I was told that too, these generalizations about who reads what I I'm told that in Hollywood a lot, um, where they're like, you know, that black people, 
black producers, black viewers don't really like fantasy shows. And I'm like, what black Twitter made game of Thrones a thing. You know what I mean? Like they do watch it. Um, they do engage with it, but it's so interesting. I have had a harder time getting material that is fantastical in nature that features black people, um, adapted, but that could be because of many things, racism, you know what I mean? Like a lot of things like my community does have historically in the writing in stories and in spaces around stories has focused on history, historical narratives, telling the stories of black history, um, triumph, resilience. Um, so genre work that we've done, has felt like a departure from the normal types of stories that we've been told. But I think that that is not something you say. Once we saw, like, it was so interesting watching how Lovecraft Country, which was written by a white man, but featured black characters and was turned into that HBO show, watching black people engage with, with black, with horror and history and, and monsters was fascinating and it felt like, wow, okay, great. Like continuing to open up the community to more things, but a small press shouldn't be saying things like that, period. Cause it's, it's a lie. Um, and it's racist. It's racist. Uh, but you know, there are, I think science fiction and fantasy, my dad, who's a big sci-fi fantasy nerd. Um, he talked about this. He was like, you know, I've been reading fantasy since the, 60s. Um, and it's full of white people. And so I understand that when a, a, a genre that has been dominated by white people with white bodies, with white stories, that's what the narrative is. That's what it centers from all these big, from Lord of the Rings to Dune to the Foundation series to like, you know, all of these things. It could, it could start to make a community think that that's, that genre isn't for them because mm -hmm. they're not there. So I get sort of like it's like the chicken and the egg. Uh, but I think that, first of all, small press should never say that. Second, it's a lie. And it's a red, and it's a red flag. It's yeah. like, okay, I know who to be aware of now. And I know who to stay away from. Yeah. Um, myth number 11. Querying is harder than it used to be. If true, is it mostly due to the pandemic burnout or has the market become more selective slash risk adverse? This is a very good myth or fact, fact or fiction. Um, from what I'm hearing in the query streets, it is harder. And I think it is because of the pandemic back, like backlog, burnout. I don't think the market has become more selective. I think that we're headed into a recession, which means that there's less money to spend. Mm -hmm. And publishers are having a hard time as they tr transition back out of the pandemic thinking. Because we're still in a pandemic. But I think that, like, the at-home work and um, things are changing the way people are spending money. Hollywood is contracting mm -hmm. as well. So entire departments at studios have been like let go animation children's and family programming which has a ripple effect down to the book community so like all of these communities are constricting right now like a housing market right like that's mm -hmm. what's happening so it is harder people are are behind editors are very behind on their reading 
agents are very behind. Mm -hmm. And so I think that the answer to this is not to be discouraged. I think the answer is you have to just work on your book. It is the literal only thing that you can control. And whether it's, if you don't get a bite from an agent, it's taking the notes. If you have notes, uh, and going back into it and figuring out another angle or just writing another book because yeah. the the one thing you should not have like the what like the one thing that you need is just a wealth of ideas and just to keep writing yeah 12 it is it's good to choose your next book project based solely on passion for the idea rather than potential marketability Ooh. Damn. I think it's a fact, actually. Um, I think it's good to, you need passion regardless for all of the things that you're working on. But I do think that strategy is important. Thinking about how, and what I found out from being a librarian, a, a children's librarian, working with K through eight and with high school, is that sometimes if your kids want one foot in the old, and one foot in the new. So if you've written a certain kind of book and it had a certain kind of series and you're trying to build a bridge into your next series, some of your readers are going to want some of the ingredients of what you do well and what they came to you for, for the first series into the next one, right? So if you're smart, you can sort of pivot um, into new using some of the ingredients of old, but that doesn't mean that you can't just go do what you want to do. Um, but I know publishers are in it to make money. So they want your readers to follow you. So they're thinking about when you turn in that proposal for your next book, they're thinking about, will your readership that we built, we use publicity in the marketing machine to build you and to help you get, will they follow you? Mm-hmm. into it, right? Like it's a risk. I remember talking to Saba Tahir who just won the National Book Award for Young People's Literature. Our boo. <laughs> um, how much of a risk it was. She says it in her acceptance speech. She did An Ember in the Ashes and she did that um, series. And then she wrote this contemporary novel based in her experience as a kid of immigrants growing up, up in, in the desert. desert. Right. And how different it was. And she says in the speech that her agent, she thanked her agent for not shooting her dream out of the sky. And when she said, hey, I want to do this book. Um, And her agent was like, we'll make it we'll make it happen. Like, I know you're you're knee deep in your series as well, but we'll make this happen. Um, So and so they did. And so they did. But it it is something to think about. Like, that's a perfect example. And yeah. Strategy. I think, I think that that strategy is such an important part of a career, and I'm like obsessed with strategy right now. Even though, like, and I 20, 2023 to me is going to be like my strategy year, where I'm just going to like hibernate and recalibrate and like figure out like what's next, what's next, because that's always the question. Even when I'm writing a book, it's like when we're hungry, like when you and I are having lunch, and it's like, well, what should we have for dinner, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> well, how do we do that? You got to be one step ahead, right? Like, you have to be one step ahead, and I think that that's how you, that's how you, I feel like you, you stop yourself from falling out of love. And because everything the publishing industry does is like almost guarantees that you'll fall out of love with writing books. Right. Especially if you have a bad experience. And so your, your agent, your friends, ever all of that, that's, what's going to, that's like your, those are your guideposts. Those are your lodestones in order to keep you centered so that you retain that passion. And so I think that 
let's say that your agent thinks a book is a bad idea, but you are extremely passionate about it. Then maybe you should just write that book and figure everything out later. But I don't think that I, I, I just don't think that like you should ignore the call of a book because it's not the market because maybe in a year or two, it'll be, it, it will be the market. Um, maybe you'll start the market, but, but again, it's like without the strategy part of it, you're just writing a book that you're pub- that you're very passionate about. Yeah. You have to have somebody come to the table with you like Saba's agent did. Right. Where it's like, I'm passionate about this. doesn't make sense considering I wrote a fantasy series, just fantasy dystopian series, but look where we are now with a national book award. Right. So it paid off. The Mm -hmm. passion paid off. And you just have to know that that is, it's a gamble. All of this is a gamble. So mid 13, if you don't hit the list, your career is done. Incorrect. (laughs) So many writers would not be writing books. The list is not an actual metric of how many books you sold. It is a scam and a lie. And I have hit the list a couple of, uh, several times. And you I hit never... the list several times. I have never hit the list, um, but I still have a career and I still am selling books. Yep. So. Remember, a lot of people are placed on that list. It's not because of how many books they sold. It's for their, their little metric that they don't. The actual, the re- I feel like the real calibration is the USA Today list because that counts all books. Mm-hmm. Um, and so almost as like, it's almost harder to get into the USA Today list than the New York Times list, but the New York Times has more prestige, prestige. It has more prestige. And Mm -hmm. I feel like it is the thing that everyone is so obsessed over publishers, agents, editors, like authors, the amount of authors that freak out over it. Like I just, the week after my book comes out, cause I know I won't hit the list. I just like turn my phone off so that I don't, I, cause I've gotten sympathy texts from other writers where they're like, Oh, I'm so sorry. You didn't hit the list. I was like, bitch, why are you texting me? Like, right. Wednesday <laughs> at six o'clock is awful. It's an awful hour. It's the witching yeah. hour. Um, that's when the list comes out and you're like, and I'm like, I, and so it, because some authors are expecting it, but no, it does not mean your career is done. I have published 19 books and not a single one has hit. So you're yes. fine. You're fine. You'll be okay. Um, let's do this one as the last one. You have to take all of your editor's notes when they send you edit letters on your books. No, that's no. a myth. That's a myth. That's a myth. You don't have to be mean about it. <laughs> like, how dare you? this is not my vision, you know, (laughs) this isn't going to work. And here's why. Like, I think, look, as somebody who's edited short stories, uh, and I've sent manuscript edits to friends. Uh, so these are all like the, the things for friends is unofficial. And then the short story one is official. It is, you never know how people are going to react. And so when I get an edit from my editor, I know I want an, I want a 21 page single space edit letter. That's going to make me unable to get out of bed for a week. Why are you like this? I just don't understand why you're like this. Because I feel like the suffering makes my writing better. Just kidding. That's no, not it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> it does. trauma talking trauma. 
You just want to be raked over the coals and be a suffering artist. I do. I want to suffer. Um, (laughs) I want the sweet agony of thinking I'm a terrible writer. (laughs) And then coming back stronger, like Rocky, running up the steps of that building. (laughs) think that you're a strange individual. Eye of the tiger. I knew you were going to sing. So I, yeah. So I, I think that like, an editorial relationship is like any relationship you have to work on it. Right. And so I think that that's why it's important to have a call with your editor, uh, to say like this, this is what I like. This is what resonates me about these edits. This is what I'm not willing to do. Um, and just make everything clear because at the end of the day, it's your book. They have licensed your book. They presumably read a first draft before they bought it. Um, (laughs) <laughs> and if, and if it's like an option book, then it's like you have an, an outline, right? Um, so you, they should yeah. know what's happening. If you change a book completely halfway through, maybe that's a different conversation, but an edit is an edit. It's like, you're all working toward, toward readability, toward having a success. And so it's like, it's a teamwork. It's a teamwork. And you can always stat. Yeah. We love a, we love a stat. Actually, I think we should end on the spicy one. The spicy yeah. one? The one that we got, the myth. Oh. Um, if if you get a book deal and a film deal before the book comes out, you're an industry plant. <laughs> <laughs> this is a deep cut if you're not watching TikTok. Right. Um, and it's a lie. It's a lie. It's this is a myth. This is a myth. There's no such thing as industry plants in the publishing industry. I think that when somebody's successful, um, people will look for any reason to de- delegitimize. De- how do you say that word? Delegitimize. <laughs> Eye of the beholder, beauty is <laughs> today. We are. <laughs> we're on a roll. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Today's it's off. <laughs> but yeah look there's no industry pl- yeah it, uh, <laughs> anyone's looking for that reason to take people down and yeah. i feel like publishing publishing has celebrity clients but they don't have industry plants it is it is absurd to me that that's even a thing I know um, it's weird. It's it it's funny. I think about Blackout had a film a, a film and a TV deal before the book came out. So nobody, wait, has this been a long con and the six use are industry plants? Right, it's a long con. So I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, that had that, but all right. It's mm-hmm. just people are looking for conspiracy. People are looking for um that kind of thing uh right now and it's like there is no scam here. Like yes. this is really how the business is right now. Um, and so you might not understand it. You might not understand TikTok, TikTok celebrity. You might not understand how books are being sold right now and how it looks different. But it doesn't mean it's an industry plant or like some sort of um, conspiracy theory. I hate conspiracy theories and all of that because it veers into racism and is always giving mm-hmm. racism. And it's so interesting. The people that are labeled industry plants are usually BIPOC women. And it's like, okay, so this is giving a lot of isms. And so I just think 
it's a, it's clown shit and, um, and definitely a myth and it's funny. And I love the person who sent this in very deeply, <laughs> our chaos prince. We did say it would be anonymous, but this was from our chaos prince. Someone we love so much, <laughs> our little honey, our little honey. Um, and so, so yeah, that is a myth. There's so many more. We have to do like a part two. We we have to do a part two next season. Um, But if you have, if you have any myths or uh, that you would like us to go over, perhaps for next season, we'll do this episode again. It's, I think it was really enlightening to see the things that people submitted. Um, And it just goes to show that we need to figure out a better way to have information and whether that I, I personally think that that should come from like agents educating their authors on the industry um, and figuring out a way that to make things easier because we're just these anxious balls of creativity that need an outlet. And so uh, thank you for joining us. And, and we hope that your publishing journey gets a little bit easier. Yep, and we hope you laughed because some of these myths were uh, an adventure, a journey. <laughs> I hope that you're going forward looking at covers and loving books because we know that the eye of the beholder is where beauty lies. Um, so. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I'm uh. going to let you forget this. I cannot wait till certain friends listen to this episode and text me and say, really? <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> Look, English is my second language, okay? That's true. <laughs> that is true. You're pretty fancy. That's it for this week's episode of Deadline City. Thank you so, so much for listening in. Our goal is to demystify the publishing industry and count on listeners like you for your support. If you like what you hear, comment, subscribe, give us five stars, and share the episodes. Check out our Patreon and Ko-fi information at deadlinecity.com slash support. See you next week. And for now, ride on.